Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we will be discussing the book Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story, written by Angela Sini and published in 2017. And today I want to start off our discussion with a quote from the book about the author's own experience. She says, quote, When I was promoting my first book, Geek Nation, I went to the city of Sheffield to give a talk. When I finished, a short, middle-aged man came over to ask some questions in private. Where are all the women scientists? Where are the women Nobel Prize winners? He asked, sneering. Women just aren't as good at science as men are. They've been shown to be less intelligent. He walked up so close to my face that I was literally backed into a corner. What was a sexist rant quickly became racist, too. I tried to argue back. I listed the accomplished female scientists I knew. I hastily marshaled a few statistics about school-age girls being better at mathematics. But in the end, I gave up. There was nothing I could say for him to think of me as his equal. End quote. I'm starting with this quote because one of my very best friends has a family member who frequently lectures their family, including the young girls in the family, about the scientific evidence that proves men's superiority to women. So for myself, for my friend, for all of you listeners who have ever found yourselves caught off guard and wondering how to respond when you hear about women's quote unquote proven inferiority, today's episode will hopefully provide some sound bites to use next time that happens. And I'm so excited to welcome to the program, Dr. Chantal Dolan. So thank you so much for being here, Chantal. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So Chantal and I are new friends. We are we discovered we are neighbors. We live really close to each other and have lots of friends in common and actually lived in Palo Alto for several years. We have Stanford in common, a lot of the same interests and loves. And it's been so great to get to know you, Chantal. And I'm I'm especially excited to have you here as a scientist yourself, because listeners know I am pretty much all of my academic background is in the arts. It's in English and it's in history and it's in philosophy, but I don't have any background in science at all. So I'm really, really happy that you agreed to do this episode with me and bring your life experience to the conversation. So I'm wondering if we can get started off by you just introducing a little bit about yourself personally and your career and just some things that make you you. Great. I'm happy to give you a brief background, Amy. I'm actually an epidemiologist by training. I used to have to explain what that was, but (laughs) now that we live in the COVID world, pretty much everybody has at least heard the term epidemiology or epidemiologist. So that's good for me. I grew up mostly in North Carolina, um, but and I am the fourth of four daughters with one younger brother. My parents were both from the West, though. I was raised in a family with traditional gender roles. My dad was the provider, my mom stayed home, but some things they did weren't that traditional. They raised me to believe that I could pursue a career for myself. The things that were most important in in the values that I was raised with were family, faith, and education. Our family dinner topics usually centered around uh, what books my parents were recently reading, what we were studying at school. Both my parents were raised in very rural settings out West. They were both the first in their families to go to college. 
and they were active learners their whole lives. My mom was an English major and a teacher early on, but I think she wished she could have been a scientist, and I don't think that she felt that was available to her. Uh, She was fascinated by all things scientific, and when I was in high school, I was taking biology and chemistry, and so she actually went to the local community college and took those classes as well because she wanted to be able to talk to me, and she was also interested in those things herself. She died relatively young. I was a freshman in college, so some of my most treasured memories of my mom are those years when I was in high school, and we would have that shared bond of science and talking about science together. I left North Carolina after high school and have really been out west ever since. I did my undergraduate work in human biology at Stanford. And then after graduation, I spent three years working in an infectious disease lab at Stanford Medical Center. So I was really doing bench work. I was doing research on cytomegalovirus, CMV. Mm -hmm. But I was in the same lab where the scientists were doing that early HIV AIDS work. In fact, uh, my blood was always drawn and used as the negative control in all the early AIDS studies. Cause no I was way. Like, yeah, I was like the nice little Mormon girl, so they figured I had clean blood. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, wow. Yeah, I'm the negative control to make sure that, you know, that it's not HIV. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> it was, yeah, they really didn't know anything back in those days. It was really early, so it was, yeah. it was a really interesting time to be sure. Yeah. But I actually realized I didn't love laboratory bench work. But I loved health and I love science. So I ended up going into epidemiology, which is the study of the cause and distribution of human diseases. It kind of hit a sweet spot for me because it wasn't being a doctor with patients and it wasn't being a lab at a bench, but it's still very much involved in public health. Mm-hmm. So I did a master's in public health at Berkeley in epidemiology and biostatistics and then did a PhD doctorate in epidemiology at the Stanford Medical Center. I always thought, even from when I was growing up, that I would be a professor someday, that I would go into academics and do research as a professor. But I actually ended up going into private industry after grad school. I worked for Genentech, which is a major biotech company, for about six years and then went out on my own. And then I've had a small epidemiology consulting company for many years now. I usually work about half time, have about four or five biotech clients at any moment, And I specialize in helping plan, analyze clinical trials, and especially patient report outcomes. So have you been like a lot more busy during the last couple of years with COVID? Has that really ramped up for you? Well, biotech is just hot because of COVID. So I've been super busy. And that first year of COVID where we were all locked down, I was working almost full time and it just was too much. So I kind of backed down a little little bit this year and I'm trying to be more halftime is what I like to do. And I mean, I don't have specific work on COVID. I've done a little bit of consulting on it just for free. And then some of my clients have drugs that are being developed or have been developed for COVID. So I would Hmm. say I'm not on the front lines, but I can see them is the way I would say it. Hmm. Wow, that's really fascinating. What an interesting time. I mean, it's a sad, really sad time. Yeah, (laughs) really hard time. (laughs) But you've been able to do, I'm sure a lot of good, because you're positioned in a place that's really, really needed. So that's, that's super cool. Okay, the next question that I like to ask my guests is what interested you in a project called Breaking Down Patriarchy, or, or even the book we're reading, or just anything about the project, however you want to answer that. Well, 
I have heard about your podcast from a couple of different friends. So I was already interested in the topic, but this book specifically um, spoke to me. I would say that my decision to go into private industry versus academia and becoming a professor, and then my subsequent decision to leave the in-house corporate world and run my own company were both driven by factors associated with being a woman in science and ultimately wanting to raise a family. When I was in grad school, uh, I was looking ahead and realizing if I stayed in the world of academics, I would be fighting for tenure, which is the hardest time in an academic's career during the years where I could possibly have children. And also, I didn't love the idea of fighting for tenure or writing grants my whole life. So for a multitude of reasons, but some really related to being a woman and trying to balance career and a potential family life, I chose a career in private industry. And ultimately, I took myself off the corporate ladder so that I could have the flexibility to spend time at home with my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So those choices and topics definitely feel really relevant to me in terms of the book we're discussing today and, you know, where are the women in science? Mm -hmm. So women pursuing careers in science feels pretty personal. Hmm. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have this discussion with you. First, before we get to the book, We'll talk about the author just a little bit, and this will just be a very short bio about Angela Siney, but I'll just read what I found on her website. Angela Siney was born in 1980 in London, England. Her parents are from India. She has a master's in engineering from Oxford University and a second master's in science and security from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Between 2012 and 2013, she was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And she's given distinguished and keynote lectures at Yale, Princeton, Oxford, and other notable institutions. She published the book we're reading today, Inferior, How Science Scott Women Wrong and the new research that's rewriting the story in 2017. And it has since been translated into 14 languages. And then her most recent book is called Superior, The Return of Race Science. It was published in May 2019 to great critical acclaim, and it's become a finalist for various prizes. And she's now working on her fourth book, which explores the roots of male domination and patriarchy, which will be published in 2023. And obviously, I can't wait to read that one. I wish that it, you know, were coming out in time to be in season one of the podcast, but that'll be one I'm looking, I'll look forward to reading. Diving into the book, we're going to format the conversation like we always do, just taking turns, kind of highlighting sections that we thought were interesting and then talking about them. And I wanted to start just with something from the introduction before we even get into the meat of the chapters. But I thought this was really significant. So she says, in a study published in 2021, psychologist Corinne Moss Rakusen and a team of researchers at Yale University explored the possibility of gender bias in recruitment by sending out fake job applications for a vacancy of laboratory manager. Every application was identical, except that half were given a female name and half a male name. When they were asked to comment on these potential employees, scientists rated women significantly lower in competence and hireability. They were also less willing to mentor them and offered far lower starting salaries. The only difference, of course, was that these applicants appeared to be female. 
So I wanted to start out with that because, as you said in your you know, personal intro, Chantal, there's like women in STEM. We hear about this all the time. And I still have heard certain men claim that there's actually no gender inequity, even in STEM. And, and men will say, you know, women, it's true. Women aren't in these positions as much as men are, but it's because the women choose not to be. And it's true. It definitely is true, like you said, that sometimes women do have have the option of, you know, doing the the fast track to to leadership in their careers, but they opt out for various reasons, usually having to do with family. That is true that women do, you know, opt to do different things. But there are still just many, many ways, which is what this this study demonstrates, right? That that women are disadvantaged in blind studies. This is proven because we're still battling this unconscious bias, hopefully unconscious. Usually I do think it is unconscious. And and we've as women have even absorbed that unconscious bias too. Oftentimes even women don't want to hire women, right? And so this is still very much an issue across the board in so many fields, but especially in science. So I wanted to start out with that. Did you have any thoughts on that, Chantal? Yeah, Amy, I I find that beginning as well very compelling. Um, and please don't interpret my earlier remarks to suggest that all women are just opting out of science and yeah. it's a fair environment if you stay. Yeah. Because I have so many fem- female colleagues who have stayed in academics or have stayed in the corporate world And we talk all the time about how hard it is to be a woman and how you're always battling for credibility. And I was reminded that when I was first interviewing for jobs at a grad school, I had an interview at UCSF, which is a major academic research center in San Francisco. And during my interview, the male researcher told me that I didn't really need this job because I was a beautiful woman. and. I know I was going to get married to some rich man and he would take care of me. Oh. I, I was just like so shocked to my core wow. that this man would say that out loud to me. And also like I had known him in my graduate studies. So I just assumed wow. that he supported women in science. And I was at the time I was newly divorced and really worried about supporting myself. Mm-hmm. And I left and I never told anybody about it. And I hope now that if such things are said to women in interviews, which is hard to believe that they were said then and harder to believe that they would be sent now, but I hope that young women who are not in positions of power feel that they can speak up. That is shocking to me, actually. So he knew you in grad school at Berkeley or Stanford or at Stanford. Oh, my Mm -hmm. gosh. Yeah, he knew me. And also to be I mean, if he's at Stanford himself and he's at UCSF, it's not like he's at sorry, but BYU or like a conservative Christian school in the South or something. No, no, he was at UCSF. Yeah, yeah, he was modern. He was modern and I was just floored. Yeah, I was just floored. I felt really betrayed. Yeah, I bet. Really betrayed. In fact, I did finally tell my doctoral advisor and my main professor at Stanford, I think I told her two years ago and she couldn't believe it. She's Mm -hmm. like, I wish you had told me. And I'm like, I just, I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so shocked. So, and she couldn't believe it. She's like, are you sure that that was, you know, and she named the name. I'm like, I'm absolutely sure. Yeah, you, you know? wouldn't forget. I that. was in the room. You yeah. Know? Wow. So yeah, it was shocking to her as well. Hmm. Anyway. 
to go back, I guess, to that earlier point, I think that at very the least we could agree on is that some qualified women, and I'll call myself one of those, do mm-hmm. opt out partially of their careers. But really, is that how we want it? And when you think about it, is that the solution for women scientists to feel they need to opt out, that they can't, you know, fully have their career? And it really reminds me of the recent discussion you had on your podcast about mm-hmm. women trying to have it all, but really not yet being able to. So is that I think- the one with Nylon? Yes. With our, mm-hmm. Yep. That's the our unfinished business. Yes. Yes. I thought that was so, this is where like so, so many of these texts start to dovetail and mm-hmm. connect to each other, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's a story, right? Yep. So there's definitely still an old boys club in, mm-hmm. in science, in both academics and industry. I saw it especially early in my career. Um, there are lots of women in medium level roles, but mostly men at the top. And when I was working full time in biotech, the men who were hired about the same time I was, it just seemed um, that they got promoted so quickly. And I think they really, I think they had poker nights with executives and that men would get invited to those poker nights. And I, I hope things have changed and that they can't get away with that that male centric behavior anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not all, you know, doom and gloom. I have had men stick up for me in science. And when I was hired by Genentech and I was interviewing with a man in the department I was going to be working in, he pulled me aside and said, Hey, you know, whatever salary they offer you, it's going to be too low. And you need to ask for more. He's Mm -hmm. like, you're a woman. You need to ask for more. And that whatever they tell you, it doesn't matter what it is. You you say, I need more salary or I need more bonus or I need more stock. And that seems like normal advice that you hear now. But this was over 20 years ago and I was nervous. I wanted the job and I needed the money and I was afraid. But I did. I took his advice and I did ask for more and they gave me more. They gave me more mm-hmm. signing bonus and more stock and said, in a couple of years, we'll give you a big raise in salary. So that was a nice story. I thought I would yeah. share one nice story. Yeah, no, that's so great. That's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. That's so great. And I'm so glad for that. Yeah, that you mentioned kind of your choices and definitely because this will come up, I think, a lot during this discussion is how important and it's come up in other books too, how important it is to have women stay in science. And so for you to reference that book, Unfinished Business, and talk about like, women are still given such limited choices, right? If we need women to stay in all of these fields, then we need to rework the system. And for for men's benefit too, for the benefit of everybody so that men can see their kids more because dads want to be with their kids too, right? The whole system needs to be reworked so so that people can thrive. Okay. I think I took the next chapter too, Chantal. So I guess we'll kind of bunch up a little (laughs) bit and then Um, keep going with your chapters. But I chose chapter one, and it's titled Woman's Inferiority to Man. And she starts out appropriately for a science book with Charles Darwin. And I think it's so interesting. I had never really thought about this period in history when Darwin was first publishing. I'd never thought about it in terms of how it impacted women. But she says that many women's rights activists in the 19th century were at first really excited about the theory of evolution because it gave them an alternative narrative, um, an alternative to the, the religious stories about men and women that are in the Bible, obviously. And so 
She quotes historian Kimberly Hamlin saying, quote, Darwin created a space where women could say that maybe the Garden of Eden didn't happen. And this was huge. You cannot overestimate how important Adam and Eve were in terms of constraining and shaping people's ideas about women, end quote. That is still true for sure. And so, you know, you can just imagine these women who are are advocating for, you know, women's right to vote and to to deconstruct the laws of coverture so they're not owned by their husbands and their all of their property go to their husbands in marriage like they're they're trying to fight for women's rights but based on an an argument of equality that isn't found in their laws because their laws are all based in the the judeo-christian tradition and so then when darwin publishes they're like oh my gosh actually you know we, we can turn to science instead of just being stuck with these misogynistic religious views on women. So when they read then Darwin's views about women in his book, The Descent of Man, they were devastated because Darwin's views about women were actually not not that much better. And Sine sums it up this way. Quote, in The Descent of Man, Darwin argues that males gained the advantage over females across thousands of years of evolution because of the pressure they were under to improve in order to win mates. Male peacocks, for instance, evolved bright, fancy plumage to attract sober-looking peahens, and male lions evolved their glorious manes. In evolutionary terms, he implies, females can happily reproduce no matter how dull they are because they're the ones that give birth. They have the luxury of sitting back and choosing a mate while males have to work hard to impress them and compete with other males for their attention. In this vigorous competition for women over millennia, the logic goes, men have had to be warriors and thinkers. And this has honed them into finer physical specimens with sharper minds. Women are literally less evolved than men. She quotes Darwin, quote, the chief distinction in the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by man attaining to a higher eminence in whatever he takes up than woman can attain, whether requiring deep thought, reason or imagination or merely the use of the senses and hands. Thus, man has ultimately become superior to woman, end quote. <laughs> That's just depressing. It's so depressing. <laughs> like, I feel it in my chest. Like, I feel a devastation. Oh, it's so hard. So she, so Angela Sine writes that, like, multiple women were writing letters to Darwin after reading this and saying, this cannot be what you really mean, right? And and they have letters in Darwin's own handwriting responding to these women and saying, I'm sorry, but women really are intellectually inferior. This is what the science is proving. And so this is kind of the first example of, you know, what, what she titles her book, How Science Got Women Wrong. And then the rest of the chapters will explain other outdated, but still often believed and often quoted ideas. So that was the first kind of foundational concept from Darwin. Right. And just add me to the list of women devastated by Darwin's response, Amy. Totally. Ugh. I mean, I'm a biologist first, so I'm a huge Darwin groupie. Mm. Uh, you know, so this I didn't know this history either. I mean, I guess I wasn't reading Darwin with women's um, issues in mind. And mm -hmm. so 
like even a few years ago, I was in a pretty big Darwin phase and I read The Voyage of the Beagle, which is basically his diaries of his famous journey that included the Galapagos Islands and its famous finches. Um, I was just fascinated to read his diaries and almost be able to watch him develop skepticism around uh, everything being created all at once with no changes ever. Mm. I distinctly remember him describing witnessing fossilized shells high on a cliff in South America somewhere and just this huge light bulb going off for him while he's writing his diary about how things change and are not always the same. And uh, so my knee-jerk reaction is to defend him. (laughs) You know, there were no women on that voyage. He was always just surrounded by men and just say, hey, it's not surprising that he doesn't come to the defense of women. He was a product of his times. He was ahead of the game in terms of his ideas about natural selection. And that would lead to our understanding of evolution. But maybe, you know, he just wasn't tuned into women's issues. But you know, reading this chapter in the book that we're talking about today, it just made me realize that his reaction and his response to the women of his day who were questioning the natural inferiority of women, it must have been like a punch in the gut for those women. Mm-hmm. It feels like that to me now, mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting to think about what would have happened if he had said, oh, hey, of course, that's not what I meant. There is no scientific evidence to suggest women are inferior to men. I mean, would there have been a different trajectory to the whole women's rights movement Mm -hmm. and the acceptance of women in science? I just Mm -hmm. wonder, and I think about the impact just on a smaller scale, what is the impact that we have on those around us with our words? And in small ways, do we say things off the cuff that have other implications that we don't know about in other people's lives? You know, have we ever discouraged or encouraged women or young girls that we meet by the way we talk about ourselves or other women, particularly I'm thinking in terms of math and science? Mm. Do we say, oh, I was never good at math in front of our daughters. And what does that do to a daughter? You know, even today, there's just separation in math and science for boys and girls early on. It happens around middle school. And certainly by the time you're in high school, there's a separation in STEM. My husband, he's mostly retired, but he teaches AP physics with calculus at a local high school. Mm. It's basically the highest and hardest STEM class that most high schools offer. Mm -hmm. And there's always a lot more boys than girls in his class. This year, he has six students. And among those six students, only one girl. And I know he's had years where there have been no girls in the class. And it's not because they're not smart girls. I think it's because... We just have different expectations and societal norms that we pass on to our boys and girls. Not that girls aren't good at math and science. Mm -hmm. Well, that'll be a theme for today for sure. And I want to say, I kind of want to ask you one more thing as we were just talking through this Darwin stuff. It seems to me, even as I read it, where he's saying like, well, men are superior to women because, and then he's giving like these examples of the peacocks and the lions and stuff. That doesn't, because when you said, you said it's not, he had the option of saying there isn't data that proves that men are superior to women. And so I'm thinking, yeah, there actually wasn't because the reason that he was giving wasn't backed up by research. It just seemed like conjecture to me. Am I reading, am I understanding that right? That's the way I understand it. And and that's the, what people do today, right? Right. They, they say things they believe and then they make false claims about, you know, what they want to believe to support them. But often it's not, 
based on really hard data or right. really or really facts. So yeah, you, like you have an assum- a set of assumptions that you've inherited. And then when you see anything like, oh, I have an idea, it's probably because of this. And then sometimes even scientists will, will see what they're expecting to see. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, we all yeah. have to, it's a challenge for all of us, but we right. all have to try to have flexible mindsets, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, try to be open to new information, try to be open to theories that aren't proven. I mean, and to me, when somebody just falls back on culture, societal norms, as if that has to be right and that has to be the way it is forever, that's a red flag, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so Amy, the chapter that I wanted to highlight next is chapter three, which is called A Difference at Birth. And that's really the question, right? Are there inherent biological differences between boys and girls present from birth? So Sine describes an experiment performed by Dr. Simon Baron Cohen, not Sasha Baron Cohen, because, <laughs> you know, I, kept, because, I, I know it's really hard to read. Right. I kept <laughs> laughing. Like a joke. I know, exactly. <laughs> and he's actually a real scientist. It's uh-huh. not like a, a joke. It wasn't a, it wasn't a prank. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> and um, Jennifer Connellan, who to me sounds like Jennifer Connelly, so totally. I imagine the actress. So to me, this is like a skit. Yes. Anyway, they observed these newborn babies. This was like supposedly an experiment. And each baby was shown two things, either Jennifer Connellan's own face, like live and in person, I guess her smiling at the baby. Mm-hmm. And the other was a mechanical mobile with a picture of her face on it. So they were trying to measure how long every baby looked at either the real face or the face on a mobile and or if they looked at all. And so this method is called, um, quote, preferential looking. And it's pretty commonly used in uh, in babies, for sure, mm-hmm. in research. So here's a section from the book that I'll just share with you. When the results came in, a large proportion of babies showed no preference for the face or the mobile, but around 40% of the boys preferred to look at the mobile compared to a quarter who preferred the face. Meanwhile, around 36% of the baby girls preferred the face, while only 17% preferred the mobile. The difference is statistically significant. In 2003, he published a book called The Essential Difference. He says, the female brain is hardwired for empathy, while the male brain is built for analyzing and building systems like cars and computers. People may show varying degrees of maleness and femaleness in their brains, but as the adjectives helpfully suggest, men on average tend to have male brains, while women tend to have female ones. So, I mean, I just need to give an aside here that these statements that he's saying, like male brain, female brains, I mean, it seems to be based on nothing as far as I can tell. I think they're meant to get attention and to promote his own theory. They certainly go beyond this experiment of babies looking at faces or mobiles. And the data to me were just not compelling. But the narrative, this male brain, female brain, it has staying power. And my theory is that the narrative supports the current status quo. So people keep keep and want to perpetuate it. There's some kind of feedback loop going on. Mm -hmm. I know I keep hearing that from people. They, They always, when I talk about gender, a lot of people want to say, but men and women are different, but men and women are different. That's always right. like really important to people. And I, I think that's so interesting and I'm still trying to figure out why. And I have lots of questions about this study, but I'll mm-hmm. let you keep going with it and I'll ask him in a minute. 
Right. She also, um, Sione, writes about a case of an intersex person named Michael to demonstrate the limitations of such a hypothesis. Right. And then, yeah. And then she talks about a psychology professor at Cambridge uh, named Melissa Hines, who studies sex different, sexual differences as well. And so here's a part in the book about what we're, what we're going to uh, hear a lot about, which is toy differences. And I'll read it to you. On toy differences now, she has little doubt left. One of the first studies I did in this area was bringing children into the playroom with all the toys and just recording how much time they spend playing with each toy, she describes. I was really surprised by the results because at the time, the thought was that toy choices are completely socially determined. And you can see why, because there's so much social pressure for children to play with the gender appropriate toy. She and others found in study after study that boys on average really do prefer to play with trucks and cars, while girls on average prefer dolls. The main toys are vehicles and dolls. Those are the most gendered types of toys, she says. Yeah, I have so many questions. Know, and my right? first question is how big, so she says there really is a difference. So yeah, how big of a difference is there? Right. And they do talk about that in the book. Here's the other quote about that. She says, Toy differences I like to compare to height, she explains. We know that men are taller than women, but not all men are taller than all women. So the size of the sex difference is two standard deviations. The sex difference in time playing with dolls versus trucks is about the same as the sex difference in height. Okay. So first of all, two standard deviations is that big? Right, <laughs> it's that, that it's is. significant. Yeah. I mean, right? as a statistician, I'll tell you that usually yeah. two standard deviations is kind of what you need to hit to be, quote, statistically different. Okay. Um, okay. But then if I think, yes. Okay. So that's noticeable. It's, it's, it's noticeable. It's it's probably there. You know, you, you look at that. You're going, okay, that's probably different. Okay. But then if she, if you use the example you just said of like height, right? I think of Mm -hmm. all the men and women I know, I can think of multiple women right off the top of my head that are taller than the average man, but it's still quite a small minority. Right. And so, yeah, that was really interesting to think of it in terms of height. What did you think about it? Right. I mean, well, I believe the height difference, right? Like (laughs) we can all see that, right? But, um, you know, the fact that girls prefer dolls to standard deviations, I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical of all the studies on babies and little kids. Mm, why? Well, I mean, I'm a – that's it's just kind of my job is I, I am a skeptic. And as a critical mm. reviewer of scientific literature and study design, these are two of the most common things I do as a consultant in my job. I mean, I do structured or systematic literature reviews of various research topics or questions for clients. And then I also help people design clinical trials. So although I'm in the world of biotech and not social sciences, these studies to me, they just don't seem to make much of an attempt at all to control for biases. Um, There's no controls. You know, what about looking at something you would expect both babies to look at for the same amount of time. What about gender neutral toys in the same room? Um, There were no blinding is what we call it of the study personnel of that baby face mobile study. So the researcher, Jennifer Conlon was like, was using her own face for goodness sake. I mean, Mm. and then when she's live looking at the babies, how do we know she was giving each baby the exact same expression? Mm. And it sounded like when, we read it that she knew in many cases which ones were b- boys and girls. So I can just imagine her reacting to the girls differently than the boys if she knew. Mm-hmm. So, you know, call me unconvinced. Hmm. 
Hmm. And the toy study, I mean, not convincing to me at all. I mean, these kids, I mean, they were toddlers, I think, but they're probably already super influenced by their home environments. They've Mm -hmm. already been taught and figured out that they're supposed to prefer trucks and dolls. They may just be showing us the early impact of nurturing and gender bias that gets a head start from the parents. Maybe that's the point. I don't know. I was just not impressed. And I think I told you before, the only kid studies I like are the ones where they tell them not to eat the marshmallows or the Oreos <laughs> till later, and then they leave the mm-hmm. room to see see who yeah. get, eats up the, tr- the treats the fastest. I mean, those totally. crack me up. You know? Yeah, yeah, they're great. I know exactly which ones of my kids would eat the marshmallow and which ones wouldn't. And my kids actually participated in some of those studies at Stanford. Are you actually. kidding? Yeah, no, because they went to the preschool at <laughs> they go to Bing? Stanford. Yes, they went to Bing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So they did, yeah, a couple of them did. They were still doing follow-ups for the marshmallow study. So some of them, <laughs> some of them ate marshmallows in that room. So it's there you funny, go. but yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I yeah, I I actually really do appreciate your skepticism. Again, I'm not a science person. And so I tend to be a little bit more like, okay. I mean, I don't I'm not trained with that, you know, skepticism or, or knowing what to question. And but keep going with these toy studies, because I think well, and I think the point too, Sione is is using these experiments to show what the problems are. Right. So, yeah. yeah, So keep going. Yeah. So. And this is from her book. This difference in toy choices, however, is a far leap from the theory that the brains of men and women are deeply structurally different because of how much testosterone they've been exposed to. It's a considerable distance from Baron Cohen's claim that there's such a thing as a typical male brain and a typical female brain, one that prefers mathematics and one that likes coffee mornings. I mean, (laughs) you know, as an aside, I'm jumping in here. Like Mm -hmm. that whole claim is just so offensive. Like, Mm -hmm. why can't we like math and want to go to coffee shop with a friend? Because Mm -hmm. everything has to be so dichotomous. Stupid. (laughs) Right. Like you said before, you know, people are so wedded to this idea of, you know, men and women are different, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to the book. For him to be right, there would have to be noticeable gaps in lots of other behaviors as well. Those with female brains would have to clearly behave on average like empathizers, and those with male brains like systemizers. According to Hines, this wasn't, isn't what we see. Tallying all the scientific data she has seen across all ages, Hines believes that, quote, sex difference in empathizing and systemizing is about half a standard deviation. This would be equivalent to about to a gap of about an inch between the average heights of men and women. It's small. That's typical, she adds. Most sex differences are in that range. And for a lot of things, we don't show any sex differences. End of the quote. So, And this is still the book. She studied an enormous amount of research and found that only the tiniest gaps, if any, existed between boys and girls, fine motor skills, ability to perform mental rotations, spatial visualization, mathematics ability, verbal fluency, and vocabulary. On all these measures, the boys and girls performed almost the same. Hmm. So Amy, I mean, I find this type of data much more compelling because they are looking across studies and looking for patterns and trying to make sense of everything. And it turns out that a lot of what they are seeing doesn't go along with the huge toy differences in that one toy preference study presented earlier. So to me, it really shows the importance of looking at a whole body of data and not just singling out one study with dramatic results. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, also from the chapter, in 2005, 
University of Wisconsin-Madison psychologist Janet Shibley Hyde proposed a gender similarities hypothesis to demonstrate just how big this overlap is. In a table more than three pages long, she lists the statistical gaps that have been found between the sexes on all kinds of measures, from vocabulary and anxiety about mathematics to aggression and self-esteem. In every case, except for throwing distance and vertical jumping, Females are less than one standard deviation apart from males. On many measures, they are less than a tenth of a standard deviation apart, which is indistinguishable in everyday life. That's amazing. I know. Data to me. And so I think what is being suggested here, interestingly, though, for me, I just have to add here, I myself, I think really, truly without being influenced by my culture, though I certainly was influenced and probably my these traits were reinforced in me but I do think I was just a true blue face looker and doll holder <laughs> as a <laughs> as a little girl I was if you handed me a truck I probably would have rocked it to sleep I just I I am a very rational analytical person and I love studying you know trends throughout history and I love a good scientific study to read and learn. I love learning in every area, but I am first and foremost an empath, I think. And I, at the same time, I have, I could feel it in myself when I was reading these studies, like I wanted the girls to look at the mobiles and I wanted Mm -hmm. them to play it with the trucks. And I, in noticing that, I thought, yeah, part of that is just because I don't like traits to be gendered because I think all positive traits should be, you know, humans should strive for all positive human traits. But I also have really absorbed some of the devaluing of the traditionally feminine attributes. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I I thought, oh, girls, I want you to play with the trucks. And I think part of that is the internalized misogyny of of not wanting to be associated necessarily with those quote unquote feminine traits. So it's complicated. It's very complicated. I mean, I enjoyed dolls as well, Amy, but my daughter really didn't. Mm. And I think it's just how she was born. I mean, Mm. I gave her a ton of cute little baby dolls. I mean, I'm guilty. I put her in a lot of pink stuff and girl (laughs) stuff, you know, but I think she was, she was like two, she was little when I realized she didn't like dolls. It was Mm. Christmas time. And I told my kids they needed to both bring me 10 toys to give away because we didn't need that many in our house and Christmas was coming. So if they wanted new stuff, they each had to find 10 toys to give away. And my little tiny daughter came back and she had collected every baby doll in the house and dumped them right in front of me. I mean, message received, right? So I never got her another like baby doll. I did get her some American Girl dolls and accessories (laughs) later, but they were mostly just a play date uh, tool Mm. because her friends would come (laughs) over and want to play with them. So, you know, we got this stuff so she would have it if friends came over, but she literally never played with them if Mm. she was solo. So... Hmm. It was funny. Um, it, but it wasn't like I was trying to create an enlightened, non-stereotypical gir- girl. Like, I didn't set out to do that. She just came that way. So hmm. I will say her brother loved building with Lego more than she did. But she definitely built her share of Lego structures. But we didn't make her just choose from the pink ones. We let hmm. her choose the same Star Wars, Harry Potter, SpongeBob kits that he was choosing from. Because at that time, the girl stuff was really lame. Now, they've <laughs> just... They have just made a big uh, announcement that Lego is going to have like more gender neutral stuff. Mm, good. Girl stuff's not going to be just pink. But um, anyway, long tangent. <laughs> but I guess in the sense that I don't think doll playing is necessary to be an empath or to become a good woman. 
I don't think being competitive is an exclusively male trait. And I don't know why either of those has to be defined as good or bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you need a little bit of fire in your belly to get through life. Maybe that's my cultural belief in the need to be a little bit competitive sur- to survive. And I know it seems like as women, we're often taught to be nurturing and empathetic, empathetic, and we aren't always taught or encouraged to be competitive. You know, when you think about girls growing up, I mean, I don't think it's the topic of the discussion today, but I always think about girls in sports in high school. I really believe we need to help our girls learn to be a little bit more competitive and Mm -hmm. less apologetic. There's a lot of data showing that girls who participate in organized athletics are much less likely to get into drug trouble, you know, just all sorts of trouble because they have that confidence and that competitiveness that comes Mm -hmm. from being involved in sport. Um, You know, I've already given my daughter that the lecture, she's a teenager, but I gave her the a lecture last week about if she's going to begin a speech or presentation at school, don't start with an apology. Don't start your conversation by immediately mm-hmm. discrediting yourself and saying you aren't an expert or, you know, you started late or whatever. You know, I know that in mm-hmm. the Mormon culture I was raised in, I still see it a lot that when women get up to speak, they spend the first sentence or two discrediting themselves. And I have often got gone up after a presentation and, and told a woman that they don't need to do that. So I just, I want women to learn to speak without apology and maybe we need to get a little bit more competitive fire. Mm. Um, I love it. Hmm, That's awesome. So Amy, the next chapter that I was just going to highlight just a tiny bit, this will be brief, is chapter four, the missing five ounces of the female brain. This Mm -hmm. continues on our theory of are the male and female brains really different? So an interesting chapter, but I'll just pull out a couple little things here. Um, research in the 1970s and 1980s revealed that the number of American boys with exceptional mathematical talent outnumbered girls by 13 to 1. Since then, this ratio has plummeted to as low as 4 or even 2 to 1. What looks like a biological difference in one particular place and time can turn out to be a cultural difference after all. So um, they pointed out that London cab drivers have insane spatial memories because they have to memorize the intricate street maps of London. And she quotes uh, Paul Matthews. We're good at what the brain allows us to be good at. And as we become good at something, our brain changes to enable that. Playing action video games or with construction sets, for instance, improves spatial skills. So if a young boy happens to be given a building set rather than a doll to play with, the stereotype of males having better spatial skills is physically borne out. Society actually ends up producing a biological change. (laughs) Yes. I know. So interesting. So interesting. That is such an important point. And I actually just read something similar in Melinda Gates's book, The Moment of Lift, um, where she talks about also that believing that we are not as good at something makes us worse at it. And um, in The Moment of Lift, she talks about a study where two groups of students and in in both groups, they're white And they're all Stanford students. And so and they go in to take a math test. And one group was told white people don't do as well on this test as Asian people do. And then the other group was not told anything. And they just went and took the math test. And the group that was told that white people don't do as well on the test performed significantly worse 
than the group that wasn't told anything. Um, and it was the, the difference of a whole letter grade on the test. I'm going to call a difference of a letter grade statistically significant. Yeah, maybe. I would say so. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And so, yeah, like. Yeah, and I absolutely believe that how we are taught to think about ourselves is powerful. Mm-hmm. I, and I loved Melinda Gates' book, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. There were so many examples in that book of giving women just a tiny, tiny bit of control over their lives and changing their gender roles in small ways, just having profound impacts on their lives and the lives of the communities they lived in. Anyway, women who are reminded, back to the book, women who are reminded of negative stereotypes about female abilities in math go on to perform worse on math tests. Removing stereotype threat can improve both men's and women's academic achievements. So this just goes back to that whole concept of mindset and believing that we can do things has real power. Mm-hmm. So I'll just jump again um, to another chapter here. Chapter six called Choosy, Not Chaste, um, <laughs> which was kind of a funny title. Um, she's yeah, going- <laughs> it was a funny title. <laughs> yeah. And a good and chapter. Guess, I thought it was interesting. It was a good chapter. They had some um, stuff, but we, I won't go over here today, but kind of a lot of interesting kind of studies on male and preference and female preference in uh, choosing partners or how many partners they're going to choose. But going back to Darwin's The Descent of Man, this chapter really discusses the concept that men indiscriminately chase women because they feel a biological drive to father the most children. And women try to escape unwanted attention because they want to select only the best possible father for their offspring. So males produce millions of sperm and they want to spread the seed far and wide. And females only ovulate, you know, once a month, a finite number of times, you know, once a month for so many years. And then they want to fend off all the unworthy contenders. So they're trying to be choosy. Mm -hmm. And this is what it says in the book. It wasn't just about mating habits, but also about how the pressure to attract the opposite sex would have acted more heavily on males, influencing their evolutionary development by forcing them to become more attractive and smarter. Yeah, it's really, just, it's hard to read that, you know. Yeah, it is. It's in, it's an interesting thought, and I just like oh, squirming, but um, but it's interesting that this that belief has translated into kind of a, a society wide mm-hmm. tolerance of men's sexuality, and even encouraging men yeah. to be sexual and tolerating you know them to be philanderers. And actually, my my mother in law when she was doing her master's degree, I remember she pointed out that this um, funny little couplet that she read at the beginning of a of an essay once that says. Hogamous, hygamous, men are polygamous, hygamous, hogamous, women are monogamous. And it's like funny, and then it like stabs you in the heart. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) not not funny. Do we have to keep making jokes about this? Right, right. But and and is it really even true? Like we know it Mm -hmm. hurts, and is it true? And and men are expected and supposed to be sexually active, and women are supposed to be passive and not sexual. And that's definitely the Victorian ideal, right? And it's perpetuated to this day, of course, especially within some uh, sectors of society more than others. But the, the scientific part of all of this is like, let's study this and see if it's really true that this is human nature. And is it inevitable that men are super sexual and women are super not sexual? So, right. I mean, it just feels like societal and cultural norms are being reinforced. Mm-hmm. I just question how much is DNA and how much of these behavioral stereotypes are 
there because they, both men and women, have been raised to think they should behave that way. Mm -hmm. And their behavior is promoted. You know, I was raised, as you were, um, in a religion that definitely made it sound like you would be sad and ruined if you were a girl and woman and had sex outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. But as I went through my 20s, I had a lot of single girlfriends, not of my same faith, but who were lovely people, my best friends, and not what a regular person would call promiscuous, but they did have you know, sexual relationships when they were in a long-term relationship and they seem happy and fulfilled. They didn't seem to have a lot of regret Mm -hmm. that they had those sexual experiences outside of marriage. So my eyes were definitely open and my views were broadened that really the way we think about sex in relationships really colors or impacts the way we think about ourselves and our experiences. My girlfriends didn't seem sad or ruined Mm -hmm. because they hadn't grown up to think that, you know? Yeah. I mean, they seemed pretty well adjusted and happy and they went into their marriages knowing how to be in a relationship. So mm-hmm. it's just a, an interesting uh, thing that I noticed as I was growing up. Back to the book. Here's a quote um, talking about different societies and different cultural norms. Um, the Himba are an indigenous society of partly nomadic livestock farmers living in northern Namibia. So the cultural norm among the Himba is that it's as acceptable for women to have affairs as men, and husbands simply have to accept them. They profoundly challenge the theory that women aren't eager for sex or that they don't want more than one sexual partner at a time. So what's going on here is that they're giving us an example of a group of these hunter-gatherers in Namibia to try and understand human nature, right? Because they've been the least disrupted as possible. And here in this case... They've got a completely different cultural norm. These Himba women are allowed to be sexually active, basically, even in their marriages. Mm-hmm. Another example in the book is the Mosua of China, one of the few societies in the world in which women head households and property is passed down the female line. People practice what is known as walking marriage. This allows a woman to have as many sexual partners as she likes. The lover of her choice simply comes to her room at night and leaves the next morning. So these two um, examples. They're really interesting anecdotes. I'm not sure how to connect them to the current arguments um, other than they provide us with actual case examples and studies of cultures that have different norms and standards. So maybe it's not all predestined by our DNA. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that is what she's intending to show, Um, just that you can't claim that all human males Mm -hmm. are one way and all human females are the other way if there are significant exceptions to that. So it just has to be more cultural. But yeah, when I was reading this chapter and the author kept referring to this Victorian idea that we all believe that women aren't sexual, I kept thinking, um, like, as I've studied history, I was really surprised to learn that in centuries prior to the Victorian era in Europe, women were seen as more sexual than men. Women were the temptresses, the earthy ones, the ones that were, you know, kind of slaves to their own bodies and so lusty. And that's why men needed to put so many rules in place to police women's sexuality. And um, so it's not, not only is it different from place to place, but it's different from time to time, right? And sure enough, that's where Angela Sine goes next in the chapter, I think, is talking about um, this concept of women being more sexual. Right. And that's in the part of the book um, that's a really interesting part that I had no prior knowledge of, hadn't had a lot of experience with the pigeon world. 
So <laughs> <laughs> me neither. <laughs> there was a study of a phenomenon among male and female pigeons called mate guarding. So in the winter, when they're not mating, they're coupled up, waiting to mate in the spring. So these are your, you know, male and female pigeons now that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll just read this from the book. The issue for the males is how to make sure they don't lose their female partners to another male. Scientist Robert Trivers imagines himself as one of the male pigeons. If you have four individuals sitting next to each other, then the males sit on the inside, even though they are the most aggressive, the more aggressive sex, he explains. I sit in between the other male who sits to my right and my female sits to my left. He, meanwhile, has his female to his right. So both of us can relax during the night. We're in between any other male and our female. So this arrangement means that each male can successfully protect his female from unwanted attention from the other male in their huddle. But a dilemma sets in when another couple is added to the mix. Now it's impossible to have a seating arrangement such that each male is between his female and all other males, he says. This leaves one male in a quandary. Remember, we're still talking about pigeons. And mm -hmm. it's because his female is now sitting next to another male. So back to the quote. What does he do? What he does is he pecks his female and forces her to sleep on the slanting roof several inches above him and several inches above the seat she would prefer to be on, which is sitting on the gutter on which she would have a male on both sides of her. The male forces her to sit alone uncomfortably in the cold. And that's the end of the quote. So, mm -hmm. I mean... Now I'm really feeling sorry for the pigeons. Mm -hmm. He goes on to describe how he watched the pigeons and when the male pigeon would fall asleep, the female would sneak back to her comfortable position and the male would wake up and see her sleeping next to another male and he would peck her aggressively until she went back to sleep alone on the slope of the roof. I mean, depressing for the pigeon. Yeah, so sad. <laughs> it makes me feel <laughs> sad for female pigeons. But yeah, this was really interesting. And I mean, in a way, I guess it does does maybe reinforce that stereotype mm -hmm. of like the male that is more aggressive and, yeah. and guards the female sexuality. But I guess this is the point that she's making too, is mm -hmm. that like the female sexuality is regarded as like the one that could potentially be out of control. I kept thinking when I was reading this, I was, you know, making um, connections to the human world, of course. And I kept thinking of the Taliban and how they just, turned the Afghan ministry for women into the ministry for virtue and the prevention of vice. And I just picture like these males pecking the females. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think of how religious patriarchs think that they're so righteous and divinely mandated to, you know, monitor and police women's bodies when really they're just being pigeons. Like that's mm -hmm. maybe what their program to do. And they're just acting on their most base and animal instincts. And it's, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. I, I just think animals maybe can be excused because they don't have moral reasoning, but humans need to do better than that. Right. It reminds me, um, that whole concept of women being, quote, too sexual. It reminds me of that book. I don't know if you know it, Nine Parts of Desire by Geraldine Brooks. It's about Muslim women in the Middle East. It's titled after the famous quote from Ali, who I believe was a companion friend of Muhammad. And it says, God created sexual desire in 10 parts. Then he gave nine parts to women and one to men. So it definitely reminds me of this need to control women's sexuality that is discussed here in this chapter. But it was actually actually a pretty depressing book to read as well when you, when you see what's going on. Um, it's just any excuse to control women, it seems to me. You know, 
cultural controls or base animal instincts, either way, shouldn't we be able to rise above it and seek equality in our relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, after I read Nine Parts of Desire, it was hard for me to imagine how women in these really oppressive cultures are ever going to get out from under patriarchal domination, Amy. Mm-hmm. It is really discouraging. And and that actually leads into a, a chapter that I wanted to talk about just perfectly. So the the next chapter in the book is chapter seven, and it's called Why Men Dominate. So she kind of, she goes from this pigeon example, and she talks about some of the practices in these various parts of the world that really do oppress women. And she takes on uh, female genital mutilation, which most people now refer to as female genital cutting. And I've, I think I've mentioned that in an episode before, but I'll just say it again. I think it's, it is useful to, to, to use terms that are more neutral because when the cultures where these things happen hear a a word that's really laden with judgment, it makes those who practice it feel defensive, understandably, and not want to engage in conversation about it. And so there was kind of this shift in terminology from, you know, Westerners, outsiders, white people essentially coming into these countries where they practice this and they used to call it also female circumcision. I remember that from years ago, too. And, mm-hmm. and they've just tried to make the the verbiage more neutral so that we can have conversations about it without being really without sounding judgmental about something that is actually uh, an important part of their culture. Right. Right. And I actually appreciate the update on this term, because when I was in grad school, we were still using that term mutilation. Mm-hmm. And although from my perspective, that definitely seems like what is going on. Yeah. But I'm sitting here in the first world and I need to be culturally sensitive. So it's, I see that it's hard to come to the table and make progress when one side feels attacks and ha- right. feels like they're being attacked and has to defend themselves. So I appreciate you kind of calling that out, Amy. Well, yeah. It, and, it, and I think it's still changing. I still hear the term mutilation mm-hmm. too, and it's not like it's offensive or anything, but mm-hmm. I appreciated being kind of shown that new way of looking at it. But we're going to just take a minute to talk about female genital cutting because we haven't been able to talk about it much on the podcast so far. And and I wrestled with this issue a lot in my class on international women's health and human rights. And so I'll just explain really quickly. There's three kinds of FGC. One is the partial or total removal of the clitoris. Another type that they practice is the removal of the clitoris plus the removal of the inner labia. And then the third and most extreme form is where the clitoris is removed, the inner labia are cut, and then they'll sew and then they'll cut and then sew and seal the flesh together on either side of the vagina. And so it's like uh, she describes in the book like a pair of lips being hacked and then sewn shut. And this final type is known as infibulation. And it's, of course, the most damaging of the three because it just it leaves these girls with only right. a tiny gap. And there's it it like all any fluid from like urine to menstrual fluid has to kind of like make its way through this little artificial hole. Right. And it can be so small that they sometimes have to be cut open when they get married and so that they can have sex and give birth. And so um, this, this procedure is becoming 
less common, but it is estimated that over 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone female genital cutting. And it's just, inter- I just, I'll just cut in, Amy. I just interrupt you rudely, but yeah, I just no. feel like it's such a huge issue. And I feel like there's still a lot of women in America mm-hmm. that have never even heard of it and mm-hmm. don't know how widespread it is. So it's just a shocking, shocking thing to learn about. So for people who learn, women who learn about it for the first time is definitely can be very hard to hear. It is hard to hear. It's hard to talk about it. I'm mm-hmm. even it reading it. It's hard to to read it, um, but it is important. And I was staggered when I took this class reading about how many girls and women it has impacted. And actually, even some women in the United States, because it, it keeps happening in some immigrant populations, yeah. too, because it is an important the refugee part of the population. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So one interesting thing about female genital cutting is that it is done by women. Yeah. Um, the girl's mother is the one who arranges it and the women in the community make a feast and tell her she's becoming a woman. It's a rite of passage for girls. And then a woman who's designated in this role in the community will hold her down so she can't you know, get up and run away and she'll be screaming. And this is in the moment of lift too. She describes these, this woman who had since been, you know, educated about it and was just sobbing because she had been the one who had held down all of these girls while they'd been screaming. And then, and then one of the women in the community is the one who does it. And it's often done in unsanitary conditions, knives that aren't clean or sharp. And, in our class, one interesting thing that came up is we just kept asking, you know, each other and, and talking about how could a woman, especially a mother, do this to her daughter, right? To another woman. And some and the question was asked, is it a patriarchal practice if it's perpetuated and practiced by women? And Sine says that the the women's reason for doing it is that if they don't do it, the community will shun them because they're impure and they'll be thought of as sluts. And it's like, whose idea is that? That's not the women creating that ideology and that framework, right? And and a girl will never be able to get married if she's not circumcised. And it's the men who are choosing who gets married, right? And so while it's the women doing it, they're being kind of used as they're they're buying into a patriarchal system, um, even though they're they're the ones that are kind of the foot soldiers who are carrying out the the orders. Yeah, I mean from from where we're sitting in our culture, we just can't understand it. And as mm-hmm. you pointed out in the beginning, we have to approach it with some kind of sensitivity in order to even have a discussion. I would think to me that once this is done to you by your mother, your grandmother, or some trusted female leader, you would never, ever be able to feel as if you had any power at all in your life. You know, yeah. to have such violence inflicted on you at a young age by women who supposedly love you means that you're a victim of intimate sexual violence your whole life life, and no way to recover. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, so much for speaking from a place of neutrality. But mm-hmm. It feels almost physically painful to even mm-hmm. think about it. And, and I mean, as I said before, I think it's still, it's shocking that it's so widespread today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is shocking to see how widespread it is. And I agree. I mean, I don't think we need to, I, I'm agreeing with you, Chantel. I, I don't think we necessarily even need to strive for like 
neutrality on this yeah. issue. I think it's pretty clear that it's a violation of right. someone's, you know, sovereignty and to do it to a girl yeah. who can't consent, even if, I mean, it would be different, even if it were like a 25 year old saying, I want this right. to be done, that would be different too. Mm-hmm. Than a so small child. It's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty, in my view, that's a violation of human rights. And so that is, um, oh, but it's so hard. But anyway, to, to move along, Saini says the reason for female genital cutting is simple. The torture continues because it does what it was always intended to do. A woman who has been cut as a child will almost certainly remain a virgin when she's older. It would be too painful for her to be anything else. And once she's married, a husband can be confident that she'll be a reliably faithful wife. It's as brutal a manifestation of mate guarding as anyone has ever seen. Right. So I, I tend to agree with that. Um, she also brings up, you know, a, a lot of different cultural practices that harm women, like foot binding in China. Mm-hmm. And she, she quotes Gerda Lerner extensively, which I, I loved to hear since I'm such a Gerda Lerner fan. Right. She, she talks about the Mesopotamian law that we talked about in the creation of patriarchy, where men could have sex with slaves and concubines, but women could only have sex with their husbands. And the Hindu practice of sati, where widows, when their husbands die, they mm-hmm. throw themselves on the funeral pyre of their husbands because their lives have no value once their husbands are gone. And she talks about ancient Greek women who were, who were told to always have their eyes downcast in the presence of men because they were thought of as having a, quote, animal nature that lurked at the core of her being, and it was deemed necessary to tame her. Aristocratic women whose families had the most to lose by way of property and wealth had practically no freedom at all. They were kept indoors, veiled, and in the shadows. From the Mesopotamians to the ancient Greeks, all the way to the present day, societies have restricted and punished women who have dared to breach the moral standard. By Charles Darwin's time, thousands of years into this regime, ideas of female nature had thoroughly adjusted to the new normal. Humans began to see women through a lens of their own creation. The job was done. Victorians, including Darwin, believed that women really were naturally coy, modest, and passive. Female sexuality had been suppressed for so long that scientists didn't even question whether this modesty and meekness might not be biological at all. Amy, I think that last sentence was so key. You know, many scientists, and certainly many, many people in our society don't even question whether women are naturally modest, meek, or empathetic because of biology. They just assume it's so. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads us to the end, Chantal. So as we wrap up this book, are there any takeaways that you want to talk about? Well, I really enjoyed this, first of all, Amy. Thanks for letting me join you in this discussion. As you know, I was a little disappointed that this book didn't actually do a disciplined scientific deep dive into what we do and don't know about biological differences between males and females. But she really brought up a lot of really interesting issues and biases and cult- about cultural norms, and she got me thinking. So I always give a nod to people who encourage us to think. <laughs> I mean, at this point, we can all agree that there are some biological differences between men and women. We know that there are differences in sex hormones in general, uh, not in all cases. Um, as I said, we know that men are on average taller than women, but again, not in all cases. 
So I'm willing to concede that there may be other biological differences that we don't understand or haven't identified. It's possible that men really are better at spatial relationships and women are more empathetic, but I haven't seen the scientific evidence to back that up for these differences. And more and more, I'm convinced that most of the differences we see between the sexes that we talk about are based on cultural norms and pressures. And so I just hope we can stop imposing stereotypes on each other and give our kids the freedom to be their best selves and ourselves and not have to fit into predefined roles. I hope girls can grow up to be moms and scientists and mathematicians and empathetic and CEOs. And boys can grow up to be bakers and caretakers and stay-at-home dads and, you know, really good spatial drivers in the taxi cabs. You know, I mean, it Mm -hmm. should be the best person for the job. Mm -hmm. I agree. The best person for the job. Here, here. And you know what? My takeaways are similar to yours. I was just thinking as we're reckoning with this age-old question of whether men and women really are different. On the one hand, the answer is yes. Like you said, men on average are taller more muscular. In general, they have a different cocktail of hormones than women do. And I also was thinking a little bit as we talked that as we were kind of emphasizing all the ways that men and women turn out to be a lot more the same than we thought. On the other hand, in a few weeks, we'll be discussing books that talk about how it's critical to acknowledge the differences that there are between average male and average female biologically, male and female bodies in the medical profession. Because assuming that, for example, a a woman's heart attack symptoms are the same as a man's, which they aren't, leads to women dying of heart attacks because they're not correctly diagnosed. And there's a lot of examples of this that we're going to be reading in different books in a couple of weeks. And so and, and also that pigeon example that we that we just shared reminds me, too, of like other animals that I've learned about ducks and geese and a lot of primates that I've heard of where the males in general are just honestly really barbarically violent to the females. And and so the fact that, you know, even in the animal world and in the human world, that it's just so common for males to, you know, peck at the females like those pigeons, it just seems to me that there do have to be some biological factors going on with mate guarding and and all of those things. But I think what Sione is trying to say in this book is that when we ask the specific question, are males superior to females? There's just been some really sketchy science in the past that we're still trying to debunk and tease out and figure out, you know, what what's what. And when we look at the more rigorous studies, as you pointed out, Chantal, we see that, like you said, you know, taxi cab drivers get good at reading maps because they read maps a lot. And girls' math scores have increased over time because they're now expected to do math more than they were before. And that will just keep increasing as they're encouraged. Because like we talked about also with that Stanford study, right, if you tell a group of people that their kind of person isn't good at something. If you tell a bunch of, you know, if it's race-based or if it's a bunch of girls, you say you you aren't good at this, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We need, in our culture, in our world, in our society, we need everybody to be their best. And we need everybody's talents, you know, and we don't need just half of the people. We need all the people. We need all the people. Awesome. Well, let's leave it at that. That's a great last word. Thank you so much, Chantel. This was such a joy. Thanks, Amy. 
And thanks to listeners for being with us today. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be reading Women and Power, a Manifesto by Dame Mary Beard, who is a professor of classics at Cambridge University. This is a slim little book. You can just stick it in your purse and read it a bit at a time. It's quite short, but it's packed with fascinating stories from the Greek and Roman world that resonate in our patriarchal world today. It's a really quick read. It's really thought provoking. And I immediately passed it around to my family and made everybody read it when I was done. And we all loved it. So I highly recommend reading this one. Again, we'll be discussing Women and Power, a Manifesto by Mary Beard next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 